So uh, last time I preached, it was a short sermon, and apparently uh, the nursery folks had just dispensed all the snacks for the kiddos, which was a problem. So uh, to make it up, I'm just going to go ahead and add that 12 minutes onto this sermon. So we'll be out of here soon enough. (laughs) Um, So let me begin very quickly by saying a word or two about shadows. A few of you have approached me about the series we're doing in Samuel. And while aspects of your questions may differ, the broad stroke question can be summarized like this. So aren't you reaching just a bit here? Are you forcing the story of David into the shape of Christ maybe too frequently? Does it worry you that some of these connections you're making aren't explicit or maybe they're not universally embraced? So first, you need to know that those are great questions. You ought to be asking questions like these because many people have made claims that the Bible is saying things which the Bible is, is not actually saying. So you have to be careful. Just like the Bereans, you have to hear the word spoken and then go to the written word of God to see if these claims are true. But let me also say this. For years, it's been taboo to suggest that the Old Testament was a series of stories about Jesus. It isn't academically respectable. It's considered by many to be irresponsible exegesis. And if you attempted to publish claims like this in many academic journals, it could mean the end of your career. And that's a problem because the authors of the New Testament don't hesitate, not even even for a moment, to proclaim with joy that the entirety of the Bible is is about Jesus, is, is written to prepare God's people for Jesus, is written to equip Jesus' followers to follow Jesus. It's not even a matter of debate. It's assumed by the authors of the New Testament that every sentence of the Bible is about Jesus. So the challenge for readers in our generation is not to constrain the instinct to read the stories of scriptures as if they're Christ-shaped. That isn't the challenge because that's our default mode. The challenge for readers in our generation is to constrain the instinct to read the stories of Scripture independently. As if they're only marginally about Jesus or as if they have very little to do with Jesus. We need to fight that instinct. That's our challenge. And we also need to develop as a discipline the eyes of the authors of the New Testament who saw Jesus everywhere. In the scriptures. That's what I'm attempting to do when I open the book of Samuel. I want to equip you to see Christ in these pages and and to fight the instinct to feel ashamed to admit it. And here's what I believe about these stories I believe that Christ and the apostles taught that God inspired the stories of the Old Testament to teach us the pattern of his rescue of his people. To teach us the shape of his redemption of his people. The pattern of the ascension of David teaches us the shape of the work of Christ. The pattern of the law teaches us the shape of God's mercy. These patterns were written to prepare us to understand 
the work of God in Christ. And so it isn't a matter of if these stories are written about Jesus. It's a matter of how they're written about Jesus. You follow me? So what we're trying to do is we're trying to wrestle through and answer that question. How is this single passage anticipating Christ? And we've got to do it again. So um, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 21. 1 Samuel 21. And let's start in verse 6. Hold up your Bible when you're there. Read along with me. Now a certain man of the servants of... uh, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. So Ahimelech the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a sword or a spear at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their midst and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there with him, or to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about four hundred men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you, till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Okay. So when we, la- when we last left this story, Jonathan had given a pretty clear warning that Saul was rallying all of his influence to have David killed. This shepherd boy had been in the national spotlight for too long. He had won the hearts of too many people and he had seen too many victories. And for some time, there had been whispers among the people of a better king These rumors were keenly felt by Saul, who was terrified of losing his grip on the crown. Remember that Saul is a madman, and he'd been steadily losing his mind for years. And so when he begins to suspect that David is the better man of Samuel's prophecies all those years ago, Saul commissions his family, his court, and his guard to end David's life. 
The rumors of Saul's intent are quickly confirmed by his son. So David skips town without charting his path, without packing supplies, without saying goodbye. And we pick up this story on David's first stop. Immediately after leaving the fields, immediately after Jonathan warns him not to return, David runs to Ahimelech, the priest in Nob. Now Nob is only two miles away. So this is literally David's first opportunity to grab supplies. And we see by David's crafty responses that he isn't too sure who he can trust. He knows that Saul and his forces may follow very soon after. So when Ahimelech asks questions about David's appearance and his journey, David answers, David's answers give Ahimelech quite a lot of plausible deniability as to the nature of his care. In other words, David so carefully and artfully answers Ahimelech's questions in order to protect the lives of the priests of Nob, who are giving him bread and a weapon, not because they want to undermine the throne, but because they support the throne. Now, this is an important point, as we'll soon see. You must remember that Saul has lost his mind, so much so that murderous rampages have become relatively normal. His court has grown accustomed to Saul grabbing his spear mid-dinner and propelling it without warning toward anyone with whom he's frustrated. And that is crazy pants. David knows the sharp edge of Saul's insanity better than anyone. So when David deceives Ahimelech, you should see this not merely as an act of self-preservation. Because if Saul believes that the priests of Nob were aiding his enemy, their lives would be in danger. So David is careful to keep them safe from the wrath of King Saul. And that's where our text begins. Take a look very quickly at verse 6. So Ahimelech the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Now, very quickly, before we begin to ask questions about this scene, I want to direct your attention to the ominous note that splits the dialogue in half. Rather than giving us the whole scene without interruption, the author stops in the middle of the dialogue to shift our focus to a shady corner of the room where we encounter the character of Doeg. We're told that he's a servant of Saul, and we're told that he's around. Now, I'm not sure how many movies you've seen, but when the camera shifts to a shady figure lurking in the background, it's pretty clearly a bad sign. Keep that in mind, because Doeg is going to become an important actor in the coming events. Okay, so setting that aside, let's very quickly take inventory. First, David is given bread and a weapon. But not just any bread and not just any weapon. David is given the bread that is prepared for God. 
bread that only the priests are permitted to eat. And we spent a lot of time a few weeks back exploring why this is especially significant. What it means about David, what it means about the future king of Israel, and what it means about God's purposes for the law. So I'm not going to get into that now, although it's totally worth exploring. But for the moment, take note that David is given sacred bread, and then he's given the sword of Goliath. Now this for me came out of nowhere, because I hadn't even thought about Goliath for a long time. And two questions immediately strike me. First, why did the priests have the sword of Goliath in the first place? And second, why would the author take time to point out that this just isn't any sword, but this is, this is Goliath's sword? Both of those strike me as odd. So let's tackle them one at a time. First, why did the priests have the sword of Goliath? Okay, so the answer, I think, is pretty simple. David, you may remember, is the rightful owner of Goliath's sword because he was the shepherd boy who rose up in defense of God's people and felled this giant. And when he killed him, he took his sword and his armor, easily the finest sword in Philistia and easily the most valuable armor in Philistia. So after Israel's victory in the valley unfolds, we don't get a whole lot of information about what David does with his spoils of war. But this scene makes it clear. David devoted at least a portion of his spoils to God. The sword of Goliath is in the care of the priests because David devoted at least a portion of his winnings, this most coveted sword, to the God who granted him victory. And when he did so, he turned it over to the priests at Nob. But now, in a moment of great need, he asks Ahimelech whether there's any sort of weapon around And Ahimelech directs his attention to that very sword which he dedicated to God years ago after the historic victory at the Valley of Elah. The second question I asked has, I think, an even simpler answer. But of course, I'm going to go the long way around. The second question we asked was this. Why does the author take time to point out that this is Goliath's sword? Why doesn't... Ahimelech simply answered, yeah, we've got one, here you go. It's a good question, I think, because details like these ought to pique our attention. They ought to teach us about the author's purpose. There's a principle that you should be aware of as we, as we read the Bible together. And that principle is called selection. It's among the most important ideas you can grasp about reading well. So if you're unfamiliar with the principle of selection, I hope you'll tune in for just a minute. When someone sits down to write a story, they have literally thousands upon thousands of details to choose from. If someone asked you this very simple question, hey, what'd you do this morning? You could literally take hours to answer that question. You could include details about her, how your sheets were crumpled, Because you tossed and turned last night. How the light entered the window just so. How the alarm sounded at 7 o'clock. How many times you had to sit, hit snooze before you woke. How many steps you took before entering the living room. How the coffee grinder jogged on a particularly dense coffee bean. The shape and colors of the pillows on the couch next to you. How long it took for the coffee to brew. And on and on and on. And just to be honest, guys, this is my problem. Because whenever I tell a story, Tara's like, skip to the end. 
You literally have access to countless details. But part of what sets aside a good storyteller from a bad one is that they choose to include at just the right moments only those details which equip the reader to understand the point of the story. Nothing is left out which is important and nothing is included which might distract. This is the principle of selection and the biblical authors do it perfectly. Nothing, literally not one word in Scripture is wasted ever. So when the author chooses to tell us that David has handed the sword of Goliath rather than merely a sword, that was a decision he made because that detail is necessary for you to understand at least one aspect of the story. So that's a simple answer to our question, but perhaps the better question to ask is, why is the detail about Goliath's sword necessary to understand this story? And the answer to that question, I think, unfolds in the next scene. Pick it up in verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall, I, shall this fellow come into my house? Okay, so David runs from the presence of Saul into the presence of Saul's greatest enemy, Achish, king of Gath. Now that seems like an odd decision, and I think it's worth asking questions about it later. But let's table those questions to explore what happens in this scene. David enters the presence of the king of Gath, one of the capital cities in Philistia. And he must have supposed that he wouldn't be recognized because what happens next seems to take him off guard on some level. And so he quickly decides that he's made a mistake and needs to get out of this enemy stronghold as quickly as possible. And the reason he changes his mind so quickly is because the people in in Achish's court see that David has a see David and immediately recognize him as the victor of Israel. In fact, in yet another moment wherein the pagan people have clearer insight into the work and ways of God than the priests of Israel themselves, these guys say, is this not David, the king of the land? I stop for a moment and soak that up. Is this not David, the king of the land? It's so good. Because David truly is the king of Israel. And it's remarkable enough that these men, his enemies, see it plainer than the people of Israel. But note that they don't say, is this not David, the king of Israel? No, what they say is, is this not David, king of the land? Now, I just think that's remarkable. Because that's the term that God uses to refer to the gift He promised His people so many years before. 
What did He promise them? The land. That's why it's called the promised land. But beyond that, these men, they use a term broad enough to get this, include their own territory, which is the land of Philistia, which will later become a portion of Israel when David is king. So this moment is soaked in irony. The enemies of God speak words truer than even the priest, than even the king of Israel. But we've got to keep moving. So these guys see David and instantly recognize him. My question is, how did they instantly recognize him? Because there's not any television or newspapers. This isn't even an age of good illustrations. I've seen them. I mean, like, you've got to give them credit because they're not working with the same materials, but they could barely draw cows, right? So unless one of these guys just happened to catch sight of David on the battlefield, and unless that brief impression made a significant enough impression for someone to confidently say, this is the king, and I don't think that's likely, then these guys really don't have a whole lot to go on. At best, they might know David as the bearded guy about such and such a height who leads the people of Israel to war. But they seem to all simultaneously recognize David for who he is, without room for doubt, and they immediately cry out to the king as a warning. How? How did they know? Let me ask you a different question. Where was Goliath from? Are you beginning to see what the author's doing? Don't turn there, but let me read from 1 Samuel 17. And there came from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a pan. A span, not a pan. A champion named Goliath of Gath. The thing is that everyone in that room grew up with a giant in their midst. And everyone in that room remembered vividly his might. And they remembered vividly his armor. And every man among them remembered vividly his sword. And they probably also remember vividly that shepherd boy. So when David unassumingly walks into the presence of the king of Gath, bearing the sword of their falling, fallen champion, these guys panic. Now, David's response is strange, I think, but nobody can deny that it's cunning. Immediately realizing he's discovered, David allows spit to run down his beard, which, by the way, is the height of humiliation among Middle Eastern people groups at this time. And he behaves like a madman. So effectively, it seems, that Achish writes him off, gets fussy with his people, and sends him away. I think this is a good moment to dwell just a bit on yet another layer of irony here. Saul, who is the pretender king of Israel, protects himself by concealing his madness. But David, the true king of Israel, protects himself by feigning madness. The sane king of Israel flees the land feigning madness, but the mad pretender remains on the throne feigning sanity. So that's cool. (laughs) 
We might have just dismissed this scene as just like kind of a bit of an odd moment in David's story, except that the scriptures have more to say about this scene than is in the text of Samuel. The subscript on Psalm 56 reads, Of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So I don't think we can rightly fully understand this moment without reading the song that David wrote about it. I'm just going to read a bit of it. Listen to his words. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The reason I think that this song is so especially important at this moment is because it's totally feasible to read the story of David as just merely a series of events, merely a series of obstacles overcome prior to David's ascension to the throne as the true king of Israel. But you must see, you must not forget how much pain David's in. How he's pressed on every side. He's lost his family. He's lost his home. He's fleeing for his life. He's rejected. And he's outcast. He's literally surrounded by his enemies on every side. And he's afraid. He's afraid that these are his last days. And he's afraid that his enemies will be victorious. He is rejected and he is outcast and he is afraid. But listen, when the true king of Israel is rejected and outcast, he praises the name of God because he is confident in God's power to save. When the true king of Israel is rejected and outcast, he trusts in the God who sees his tears and who is faithful to protect his people. And he rallies in hope because he trusts in the God who protects the reject and the outcast. What you must see in order to understand this scene is that the king of Israel is rejected and outcast and yet he rallies in great hope of the God who cares for the reject and for the outcast. And he looks to God in faith and in faith overcomes And at that moment, David becomes a beacon of hope for all who are rejected and outcast. For all who are hurting and afraid. Keep reading. Starting in chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went there, from there, to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. 
And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So David's cunning escape from the court of Achish has left him alive but homeless, free but without shelter, still breathing but rejected by his king and rejected by the peoples of the land. David is truly outcast and so he finds shelter in a cave. Now this word cave is used interchangeably with the word stronghold, so don't be confused. The word which is here translated stronghold literally means mountain stronghold and both refer to the cave at Adullam. The other thing that you should know about the Hebrew is that word, that word Adullam means hiding place or something like it. This cave, the cave of Adullam, becomes a sort of hiding place in the wilderness for David and his growing forces. And it appears that David's not alone when he chooses this cave as his fortress because someone has been sent to notify his family of his location. And here we begin to answer a question we raised early in the passage. I asked a moment ago why David would ever consider fleeing to the presence of the king of Gath. It seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? To run from one enemy, King Saul, to another enemy, King Achish, both of whom would likely prefer to see him dead. David's victories over the Philistines were the stuff of legend. He was unbeatable. So we may infer that Achish's forces were fewer and weaker because of the military brilliance of David. So one of my chief questions about this passage is why David would flee to the Philistines in the first place. Well, we just read that David, as soon as he settles in a relatively safe location, sends for his family. And then, just a few sentences later, we read that David again enters the presence of a foreign king and again compromises his own life. But this time we were told why he does it. Listen, David said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And then he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. If you're reading the story of David and you see this pattern, you see David who is desperately alone and desperately vulnerable, when you see him leave the boundaries of Israel and immediately run to the presence of kings who have a vested interest in pinning him to the wall, you might dismiss him as a fool or as a madman. But when you understand that all this time David's been desperately seeking refuge for his family... When you remember that Saul is out to ruin the line of Jesse, you catch a glimpse of a heart full of compassion. Something that might be helpful to know at this point is that an ancient custom pretty much universally held across cultures and ethnicities is to harbor the enemies of your enemy. Ancient kings, and there's loads of evidence of this in nearly every culture that we've studied, ancient kings would offer refuge to the enemies of their enemies. In other words, the king of Israel was a great and terrible enemy to the Philistines. So if the king of Gath discovered that there was another rallying against him, another had laid claim to the throne, it was expected that this man would have shelter among the people of Philistia. Because any instability among the people of Israel, any cracks in the foundation of the kingdom of Israel, were advantageous to her enemies. So David expected on some level to receive a warm reception from the king of Gath because King Saul was a sworn enemy. 
and an enemy of my enemy is my friend. What David did not expect, however, is that the court of Achish would have already assumed that David had won the throne and that they would immediately recognize David as the victor over Goliath and the leader of the armies of Israel. But look, just as soon as David has another opportunity to speak with a foreign king and to explain that he was an enemy of King Saul and to seek refuge for his his family, he does so. Because David's first priority is to care for his brothers and sisters and to protect his father and mother and to seek the welfare of the vulnerable. And we see this heart of compassion. We see this this heart that seeks the welfare of the vulnerable play out not only with his family, but also with the sons and daughters of Israel who are burdened with debt, who are rejected by their friends and family, who are outcast by their own societies. Read the first few verses of chapter 22 again. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And they were with him about 400 men. Everyone who was in distress. Everyone who was in debt. Everyone who was bitter in soul. Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. David, the coming king of Israel, has been rejected, and he has become homeless, and he has been made an outcast. All of this because he's been commissioned to establish the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will provide refuge for the rejected among God's people, a kingdom that will become a home for the homeless among God's people, a kingdom that will welcome the outcast of God's people. What David is doing here is important. He's fleeing from the wrath of a pretender king and he's gathering forces to establish a coming kingdom. But you can't forget the why. Or else this story just becomes yet another political drama. Yet another usurper's story. No, you cannot forget the why. David is working to provide shelter for the weak, for the bitter and the oppressed, for the indebted and the rejected. David is fighting for a better kingdom, a kingdom for the least of these. Oh, how much hope is there for the least of these under the shelter of David's reign. I want to read you something. This isn't from the book of Samuel. But most of you know that the book of Samuel is one of two records of David's reign in the Scriptures. This story comes from the other record in Chronicles. What's brilliant about these two records is that they complement one another. They approach the story from different perspectives. And when you read them in chorus, you you uncover breathtaking shadows of the coming King Jesus. I'm reading now from 1 Chronicles 12. And some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold to David. David went out to meet them and said to them, If you have come to me in friendship to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if you 
come to betray me to my adversaries, although there is no wrong in my hands, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you. Then the spirit clothed Amasai, listen, chief of the 30. And he said, we are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So we got a broad explanation that the indebted and the broken were fleeing to David. But here we catch a glimpse. We get, we get a glimpse of the broken and the indebted and the bitter in heart, the outcasts as they catch rumors of the coming king who will be a shelter to the least of these. And they follow these whispers to the cave in the wilderness. And this scene is a bit of dialogue exchanged between David and those who would join his ranks. And we might note David's welcome conditioned upon their friendship and the help of those who would join his ranks. But I think more importantly is that little sentence in between his words and the words of the outcast. Then the spirit-clothed Amasai, chief of the thirty. Amasai, chief of the thirty. Thirty of whom? all of a sudden we realize that these rejects, these poor, these indebted outcasts, these who have no place at the table, who have lost home and family and friends, these who seek the shelter of David in the cave of the wilderness, these are the mighty men of Israel. Have you heard of them? Let me read you some more. Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. This is an account of David's mighty men. Jashabim, a Hakamite, was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Awite. He was with David at Pastamim when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of grounds full of barley, and the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. Three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adalim when the army of the Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the strongholds, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. But David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. And the stories go on and on. And the legend of the mighty men of Israel is repeated at Israeli bedsides for generation after generation. The mighty men of David are the great heroes of old. But before they were great, before they stood their ground against countless enemies, before they moved by the might of the Spirit against the enemies of God, they were broken and they were lost and they were rejected and they were outcast. 
These found shelter at the root of Jesse, and they flourished by his side. And their story is a grim shadow of our story. Trace the shadows of the servant king who risks his life for the least of these. And your eyes will be drawn to the true king of Israel who laid down his life to provide refuge for the broken and the weak and the lost and the indebted. Trace the shadows of the son who risked everything for the safety of his family and your eyes will be drawn to the true king of Israel who died on a cross to secure shelter for his brothers and sisters in a kingdom that never ends. And trace the shadows of the mighty men of Israel who were once lost and broken, who were once bitter in heart, who were crushed by debts and had no place among respectable people. And your eyes will be drawn to the church. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But listen, God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised like me and you. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So here's your application. Follow the shadow of Christ and trace that shadow around the life of David. And as you do so, rejoice. Because our king is the sort of king who risks his life to secure shelter for his brothers and sisters. And our king is the kind of king who opens his arms and welcomes the broken and the indebted who welcomes those who are despairing and bitter in soul. And in His shelter, underneath His wings, we flourish. Rejoice in these things. And may your rejoicing lead to allegiance to King Jesus. Let's pray together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.